the irony of it being more socially acceptable for people to be high on ecstasy in order to feel than it is for people to actually be like moving their bodies or using their voices in a way that evokes a really integrated experience of ecstasy. Today, a beautiful conversation with Madeleine Rust Day, a somatic psychotherapist and creator of Body Intelligence. This isn't your normal conversation about love or relationships or dating, though it is connected. It's connected to closeness and connection and intimacy and love. Absolutely. But we get there through somatics, which is the body, the experience of the body, the body in community, the body in culture, how emotions sit in the body, the wisdom that we have inside all of us. That's what this conversation is about. My name is Sean Galanos, and this is The Love Drive. Okay, I'm I'm ready. Okay, could you please introduce yourself? Certainly. My name is Madeleine Rust Day, and I'm a somatic psychotherapist, and I've created something that I call body-informed leadership, which takes a lot of principles and wisdom from the field of somatic psychology um, and applies those principles and that wisdom to the phenomenon of culture in the West. So I've moved away from working with individuals within the therapeutic context, and I'm working more with groups of people looking at the relationship between our somatic selves and the cultures we create. (laughs) Wow, is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, Might be useful to sort of explain like what is the study of somatics and um, I think starting there might be useful. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, the simplest definition of somatic is, you know, anything that has to do with the body. But the field of somatics is actually a really particular way of looking at the body, which kind of focuses on understanding the body as a sort of a realm of experience. So the body is like a phenomenon that has its own qualities of consciousness, its own ways of remembering, of deciding, um, of engaging with the world. And so if we understand the body in that kind of a way, and that's the you know perspective that's taken in the field of somatics, then it's about relating to the body in in a really um that this is where the paradigm shift happens because it's about relating to the body as a very active participant in the life experience so any somatic practice you know whether it's somatic movement or psychotherapy takes this kind of starting place that 
the body has its qualities of consciousness and is a very active participant in the life experience. And this is different than like, oh, yeah, I have this body and, you know, I tell it to do what it does. And and that's sort of like where my experience with my body kind of ends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that kind of thinking um, was really, you know, expressed by thinkers like Descartes, you know, in the Enlightenment era. I think, therefore, I am, you know, this sort of. This idea that our thinking faculties are really the most important part of our human experience and that the body is handy and necessary, mm. but not particularly important. You know, it's kind of lesser than our thinking faculties. It's in service of the, the higher intelligence, mm-hmm. which is contained in the brain and the supercomputer. Exactly. Yes, we can already see the kind of hierarchies that um, that we've inherited. Well, it's on top. Mm-hmm. The brain yeah, is on thinking. top. So. <laughs> yeah, although I would say, you know, the brain is actually not just about thinking in the way that we've come to understand it. So, I mean, I think the brain's pretty cool, but not in the sense that Descartes might have thought. Well, the brain is the body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Well done. Precisely. <laughs> oh, man, I'm already excited. Uh, like, I, I kind of want to go here, but I, I was like wanting to save it, you know, like save this thing for later. But uh, I feel like we might as well, we might explore, explore it right now. I believe that the body holds a lot of wisdom. Hmm. And I don't know if that's like, I don't think that's a very common belief. And I, you know, I think I've been familiar with this concept of like the body keeps the score and this idea that like your body kind of knows what it needs. Actually, this, this stems a lot from conversations that I have with my therapist about the food that I eat. And, you know, she says like, you know, your body knows what it needs, right? Like if you're eating like a bunch of bagels, it's because you need a bunch of bagels, you're so you're so live in Montreal. I love it. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Uh, if everybody doesn't know, Montreal is like famous, quasi-famous for its own kind of bagel, which is smaller and has a bigger hole and is a little bit sweeter than like you know traditional bagels. But you know, my my whole thing with the bagels is that like I felt bad about eating them, you know, because I thought that I was using them as a coping mechanism for some unmet need, and her perspective was like, hey, you know what? Your body knows what it needs. And it's important to trust your body and to like, like listen to it and to believe it. And so I guess I'm kind of curious, like, what do you think about this idea of, you know, body, body holding wisdom? Mm-hmm. Mm, such a rich question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I kind of want to just be a bit of a nerd right away and speak about the brain a little bit. Um, in this vein of the brain is the body is the brain, you know, the two are incredibly interwoven. Yes. So, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the model of the brain, you know, of having two hemispheres, there's the left brain and the right brain. And a lot of people kind of know the very basics that the left brain has a very, very different personality than the right brain. The left brain is much more interested in linear information that can be sequenced 
in time and space and the kinds of memories that we know that we have. So the linear left brain, um, that's kind of what we associate with the thinking mind uh, and, and with memory as we usually think of it. Um, the right brain, however, has a completely different personality mm. and a completely different way of relating to consciousness and the world. And, and you know, I'm going to continue the sort of recap that probably a lot of people are already familiar with, but we're going to go somewhere really, hopefully, to you, exciting with this. So the right brain um, encodes information in a completely different way than the left brain. So it's having the same life experiences, but it's remembering those life experiences via sensation, emotion, and image. And it's remembering life experiences in a way that is felt in the body mm. rather than consciously recalled. So the right brain is where we have what's called our implicit memory systems. So, And most of us actually don't even know that this whole system of memory and consciousness exists. Um, so for most of us who aren't already actively practicing embodiment and actively, you know, engaging our body's intelligence, we're having memories all the time at the somatic level, at the level of the felt sense, without knowing that that's happening. So we might think, oh, I'm just in a certain mood today, or, oh, that person just bugs me, or I'm just feeling a bit uneasy and I don't really know why. But if we were to take that experience a little bit deeper and, you know, actively engage with it using somatic tools, we might realize, oh, actually, something about the smell in the air right now, you know, it's springtime, the cherry blossoms are out, the, that smell has evoked a memory that my body is holding from, you know, this same time five years ago mm. when X, Y, or Z happened, and that's why I'm feeling this way. So um, one other thing that I'll say about right brain systems is that they're extremely associative so our right brain really organizes information according to metaphor. So it's a very, you know, a lot of people know, okay, yeah, the right brain, that's the creative part of our consciousness. But it's actually way, way deeper and more exciting than, than that. It's actually about that's the part of our brain that's organizing our experience in an associative way that relates to metaphor. So our, our bodies are completely poetic and they're always forming impressions of the world and life experience in a way that relates to metaphor and time in, in a nonlinear way. So our right brains are always remembering things as though they're happening right now. Mm. So that's just a, a really basic starting point. You know, when we look at this idea of our bodies having intelligence, we can start to understand what that intelligence looks and feels like by understanding our right brain consciousness as being a whole memory system, an associative system, a creative, you know, way of engaging with the world that we're often not conscious is happening and that shows up in our bodies via sensation, emotion, and image. So that's just a real, a, a very basic starting place. Wow. I love that. I'm thinking of your example of the blossoms, right? Smelling the cherry blossoms or is it what cherry blossoms? Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, you know, you might feel a certain way. Let's say it's melancholic for some reason. You go, yeah, you know, I guess I'm just feeling melancholic, but maybe, you know, you're associating 
the cherry blossoms to an you know your or your right brain is associating the cherry blossoms to a, a time when you smelt those five years ago when you were going through a breakup, mm-hmm. for example. Yeah, exactly. Is that sort of how it might work? Precisely. Yeah. So you'll have the sensory memory of that breakup. You know, your body recalls things in incredible detail. And you might, that might have become so deeply buried, you know, maybe you've been with like five or six other people since then, and it's really not at the forefront of your thinking, but that smell of the cherry blossoms touches that kind of associative place in the brain, in the right brain and in the body. And instantaneously, that whole sensory tapestry from that long forgotten time is just awakened Mm. within you. So what do we do with that? Well, a lot of people practice embodiment for personal enrichment yeah. um, because it's a real pathway to self-understanding. Yeah. You know, once you start making a habit and a practice of noticing the sensory experiences that are coming alive in your body, maybe taking the time to write uh, or, or draw or make music or whatever your creative kind of, you know, jam is, um, you can really start to enrich your experience of yourself in your life and have self-awareness. So, Mm. you know, those are all really important things. But what what body-informed leadership is more interested in is, and and that's the, you know, the teaching practice that I've developed, is in the fact that embodiment is also very political. So what I always say is, if you're not practicing embodiment consciously, you're probably doing it badly. And you're probably doing it in a way that recreates the dynamics of intergenerational trauma at the personal or cultural level. And I know that sounds pretty harsh. You know, I'm not saying that people are bad or doing that because we suck. I'm, I'm just saying that because of the nature of our body-based memory systems, we our, our right brain memories hold memories from our personal lifetime, but That's also the place where we receive sensory memories and sensory imprints from past generations. Mm. And so most of us in the Western world are carrying around a whole lot of unprocessed trauma and unprocessed experiences from the past that have, in my opinion, accumulated to such a point right now in our collective soma, because, you know, we're not just a bunch of individuals walking around embodying ourselves, we are groups of people embodying ourselves together. And in many cases, you know, transmitting and broadcasting our histories at this kind of body-based level, every single moment of our interactions with each other. Mm. So I do think there's a certain responsibility that embodiment at this moment in time needs to go beyond personal self-awareness and personal enrichment and really get to that place of, okay, how can I practice embodiment in a way that helps me become a more responsible and creative and empowered citizen of the world? So that I can help others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and myself, you know, because I believe in collective liberation. Like it's, it's a matter of we're all in this together. Yeah. Help yourself so that you can help others. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the process, you also end up helping yourself. Exactly. Yeah, I remember having this conversation with Susan Piver, who's a meditation instructor. And, you know, she she sort of posits that, yeah, we do this work for ourselves, but there has to be an end goal of helping others. 
can't just be, I'm doing all of this self-work for my own personal gain, my own self-awareness, my personal development, my growth. It has to be done for somebody, for somebody or for a, for a greater cause. Or else what's the point? I mean, it feels good, right, to like heal thyself. Um, but we do have a responsibility mm -hmm. to the community at large because we don't live in isolation. Certainly. I would also add to that that there are certain ways, uh, you know, certain wounds that need to be healed collectively as well. Yeah. So it's like I can only get to a certain point in my own healing by approaching my healing as an individual. You know, I've personally reached this point, and I'm sure many others have as well, where I realize, okay, you know, I've really... I've really reviewed my life experiences. I've done a lot of growing and healing of myself. But there are these other, you know, deeper wounds that I experience in my own being, you know, like the disconnect from the natural world and the, you know, abusive dynamics that the Western, my Western culture enacts in relation to the natural world, for example, that I feel in my body and that arise through my practices of embodiment, I feel the pain of that. And until, you know, until that one example is restored mm. in my collective body, then I actually can't heal. As one example, you know, racism, privilege and oppression of all kinds, I would say similar things about. One of many examples. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work. Yeah. And embodiment is crucial because... As long as we're trying to approach all of these, you know, shared wounds from a solely left brain perspective, we actually can't access these deeper places where a lot of the wounds are being transmitted and enacted. A lot of people who've experienced depression will say, yes, we need to look at systems, but then we also need to look at the microaggressions. We need to look at the ways that people's patterns of embodiment perpetuate the dynamics that we're seeing writ large in social systems at the moment-by-moment -moment relational level. This feels like big and sort of amorphous, and I'm not sure like how we can even begin to do this work. I'm kind of curious if you have any suggestions on like, how do we begin? Yeah, yeah. Well, so there's a lot of different embodiment practices and lineages out there and different, you know, different strokes for different folks. If you're listening to this and you're curious about embodiment in general, you know, then I would just say, follow your interest and follow what's available to you in your community because there's, you know, richness and loads of different practices. Um what I've attempted to do with body informed leadership is to create a program that draws from embodiment paradigms, particularly trauma informed paradigms, to give the basics of education that I think we need, because we need to understand things like the implicit memory system. We need to understand things like what is trauma and PTSD and what is intergenerational trauma and PTSD and what is attachment trauma. You know, there's all of these frameworks coming from somatic psychology and in other embodiment lineages that I think are very empowering for anybody to learn about. So that's the first step I would say is finding a way to access some basic maps for the train of embodiment. 
And then the second thing that I think we need to do, and which is also what body informed leadership tries to do, is we need to create somatically informed spaces to have difficult conversations mm. because of the dynamics of intergenerational trauma and sort of the lack of practice in embodiment that is fairly characteristic of the West right now. It's crucial that when we're holding conversations that start to unpack the body-based experience of people, you know, that it start to invite that forward, that whoever's holding those conversations understands how to support what I call somatic safety. So somatic safety is not about any kind of external safety. It's not about objective safety. That's not something we can control. Our life experiences are unexpected and, and we have no right to demand that they're safe all the time. But what we can do is we can understand our nervous system, mm. you know, by educating ourselves about the nervous system. We can learn practices that help our nervous system to release defensive programs because when our nervous systems are mobilized for defense against danger, it's actually really not possible to practice embodiment in a helpful way because if we tune into our bodies in those moments, what we notice is activation and a sense of I'm in danger, which reinforces the activation to begin with. So what we need to understand is what somatic practices, what body-based practices help the nervous system come back to a resting, relaxed, socially engaged state. And from that place, and you know, this takes a lot of practice for, for everybody right now, um, a lot of conscious practice and probably also a lot of encountering of our own dysregulation because most people carry a certain amount of nervous system dysregulation unconsciously. So the act of simply finding our way back to a regulated nervous system state is in itself paradigm shifting. And when we're holding community-wide conversations about our embodied experience of ourselves, each other, our cultures, we really need to start from that place of understanding how to create somatic safety, how to help our nervous systems be calm, because the information that we have access to within ourselves in a regulated state is completely different mm. from what we have access to in other moments. So yeah, I would say those are the two crucial starting places. Like number one, find some paradigms you can learn, some maps for the terrain. And number two, find people who understand somatic safety and who can hold conversations about embodiment in a way that won't re-traumatize participants. Yeah, I really love this idea of central nervous regulation. It's not something I know a lot about, um, but I just know that when I'm in fight or flight mode, like I'm very limited in, in what options I have available in terms of dealing with people relationally. Yeah. You know? You know, it really can't be overstated how radically are we transform when the autonomic nervous system gets mobilized into fight or flight or freeze faint, mm. our bodies and our brains are prioritizing survival over everything else. It's a really radical choice for our bodies to make. We're really not designed to be in those states for very long. <laughs> you know, it's like 
the bre- the blood leaves the parts of our brains that are capable of experiencing empathy uh, and forming new memories, for example, and goes to our, you know, in the case of fight flight, goes to our arms and legs and jaws so that we can fight for our lives. In the case of freeze faint, you know, our, our circulation really, really slows down. Our circulatory system slows down and we actually become very faint and lose a lot of our consciousness uh, as well. So because our bodies are essentially preparing to die as a defensive strategy against the pain of death. Mm. So these are really radical states for our bodies and our brains to be in. And the problem is that because of intergenerational trauma and because of the way that our culture impacts our brains and bodies on a daily basis, most of us are in a dysregulated nervous system state most of the time. Ouch. Yeah. It's really, really not okay for, for us <laughs> and for our capacity to relate. And that becomes the new normal. Precisely. Being dysregulated, that's just, this is how I feel. And this is, I drink this alcohol at night to kind of calm down. I eat these kinds of foods because they feel good. Mm-hmm. You're basically, it sounds like we're living life trying to distract ourselves from this dysregulation. Exactly. Trying to cope with it. It's so painful. And uh, exactly, as you say, it becomes culture. And, you know, I would say that dysregulated nervous system states have actually come to really infuse our understanding of power in the West in a really profound way. I mean, some listeners, you may have encountered uh, the Cartman triangle, the drama triangle. Sean, is that something you've encountered? The victim, persecutor, rescuer? I've heard about it. I don't know much about it. I find it such a fascinating model because I just, it's everywhere I look in terms of how we've learned about power in the West. And, you know, Hollywood movies are just an irresistible example of, of this relationship to power. You know, we're basically given these three very stereotyped options of relating to power, either as a victim, uh, meaning we're powerless, as a persecutor, meaning we're abusing power, or as a rescuer, meaning we're trying to save the powerless from the abusers. Mm -hmm. And none of these stances is actually in a state that's capable of connecting. You know, they're all, they're like these reversed magnets that are continuously recreating the other two options, but also never really connecting. Like it's like, they're just chasing around this triangle, trying to find some point of resolution, but it's actually impossible because they're inherently imbalanced. And it will never make sense to me why that has become such a central construction of power that can't make sense to me unless I think about, okay, well, from the vantage point of a dysregulated nervous system, those constructs actually make perfect sense. And so, you know, this is where I say that embodiment is is really political because as long as we've got this dysregulation in the back of our minds and bodies in telling us about that this is what power is. You know, to relate to power, I need to either be an abuser or powerless or rescuing myself, largely through what you pointed to, addictive practices, rescue our consciousness from the overwhelming pain of being in a dysregulated body. Um, 
so that you know this is this is a particularly compelling place to look at that intersection between embodiment and culture. This feels huge mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Like it also, <laughs> it feels like a, uh, a huge amount of work, and also uh, they could have a huge impact mm-hmm. on people's lives and on our culture. Absolutely, uh, but it, it mm-hmm. also feels like a little too big to me. It's just like uh, there's just so many people in the world, and a lot of us, you know, including myself, feel dysregulated at times, you know, and, and some more than others, and. It takes a lot of awareness and a lot of discipline and a lot of work and care and tenderness and communities that support each other. And it just, it just feels like it's a lot to mobilize the kind of forces that we would need to have like a collective change in this. Uh-huh. Yes. And I would say that I think that's happening. Um, I think it's Thank really God. happening. I mean, yeah, the, there's a whole movement which is now being called cultural somatics. And that's a fairly new term. There's a, a bunch of us that have been kind of creating this this field um, or, yeah, contributing to this field in, in more recent years. Many of us are somatic therapists by training who've kind of moved into the field of looking at culture and then several years ago, I, I heard this this term cultural somatics first being used actually simultaneously uh, by two really interesting participants in, in this field of cultural somatics. One of them who many people may have heard of now because his work has become really well known through the Black Lives Matter uh, movement recently, Resma Menachem. Um, mm-hmm. who wrote a book called My Grandmother's Hands. So he really popularized the term cultural somatics. And the other person who I heard using it is a person called Tada Huzumi, who's based in Vancouver. So, so recently there's, been, there's this term that's been coined to name this field that's been developing for, I'd say, about a decade now. And I would say that body-informed leadership is a cultural somatic practice. Um, so all of us who are creating this field, there, there's a lot of energy around this right now. Um, and a lot of activist communities are getting really woven into these somatic concepts. So I think that it is something that is is really taking root. Well, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank goodness. Because it feels big. And then I, at the same time, I don't want to be defeatist about this whole thing. And I also realize I was turned on to the sort of one of the like the grandfathers of kinesiology, David Hawkins. Okay. Has a book called Power Versus Force. And he has like a a scale of consciousness, basically zero to five hundred. Five hundred being like, excuse me, if if you're a fan of this work, I don't actually really know that much about it. And it's clear if you if you're listening and you you're like, what are you saying, Sean? Um Zero to 500, 500 being something like, you know, pure love. Um, only 20% of us live above a certain, a certain threshold of integrity. Mm. And that 20% carries the rest. Mm. So, you know, as I'm thinking about how, you know, my defeatist attitude towards how much work we have to do as a whole, we don't actually have to all do the work. Mm-hmm. Because whenever we heal, we end up healing others as well. Mm -hmm. 
and we like, you know, stop creating chaos in our lives and start creating more love and more connection and more intimacy with people, which also ends up healing them as well. Mm. So we end up carrying them. So we don't all have to do this. We don't all have to, you know, heal somatically as long as there are some people doing it that end up kind of carrying the whole. Mm. That's how I'm going to explain it to myself. Mm. Well, and thank you, Sean. Like when you said love, connection, and intimacy, I think you said those Mm -hmm. three words there. I noticed my body just really softened and I felt a sense of relief in myself too because you know, that it is really interesting and important to get into the science and the bigness of all of this and the kind of big picture view. But what it really comes down to are those three things, I think, you know, you know, love, connection and intimacy. And, and so embodiment, body informed leadership, cultural somatics, whatever you want to call it, can be as big as you want or as small and simple as mm. as you want because i think at the heart of all of this this whole movement is really just how do we restore um and when i say we i mean people in the west and understanding that that is an intersectional phenomenon but you know how do we in the west restore our capacity for love connection and intimacy And that can be as simple, yeah, like you're saying, as like just being compassionate and connective with with a friend or a partner, and and you can feel the healing in that. And it doesn't need to be, you know, explained using neuroscience. (laughs) But and at the same time, it's cool that those of us who are wanting to do that as well are doing that. But it's so important to remember that that's what it's all about is connection, Mm. really. Yeah, connection. I just keep on going back to this idea of you know. When I stopped using drugs and alcohol, I stopped creating, you know, as much chaos as I was creating. Mm -hmm. And that frees up my energy Mm -hmm. to be like more loving or more conscious or more aware or more, you know, careful of my impact and uh, to be more of service, right? It kind of frees me up. Yeah. And that's a very embodied decision. Because, you know, drugs and alcohol, they impact our consciousness as it exists in our bodies, you know, they impact our biochemistry. And so by making that choice, you're removing distortions from your own body mind. So I'm curious, you know, like, how has that felt for you, the the felt sense quality of connection? How has that shifted for you? Well, tomorrow's 12 years of sobriety, mm-hmm. so that's exciting. Congratulations. Thanks. Well, for me, you know, drugs and alcohol was just a way for me not to feel. Mm-hmm. It's really like, I feel like marijuana is, you know, was one of my substances of choice, and it is so good at numbing, mm-hmm. even better than alcohol because of, of how quickly it, it works. Mm-hmm. It worked for me, you know, and I'm not, you know, bagging on anybody who wants to smoke recreationally. I don't, you know, that's fine. It's your, your body, your, your choice. But for me, it was like instant. You know, mm-hmm. if I was angry and I smoked pot, boom, gone. The anger's gone. But it wasn't processed. It just wasn't present, but it was just repressed. And so how does it feel to not use drugs and alcohol? Well, I feel more. Mm-hmm. That's 
basically it. I, I am more present to my emotional experience. Yeah. And I can be more discerning. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm feeling uh, melancholic and I smell a cherry blossom, mm-hmm. I might be able to go, oh, that's a cherry blossom. Hmm. That kind of reminds me of that time that, you know, somebody broke up with me underneath a cherry blossom tree. How rude of them. <laughs> I guess if you're going to break up with somebody, it might as well be in a beautiful setting. Mm, some compensating factors there. Well, and also, you know, I, I love breakups. I don't think that there's anything. I think they're beautiful because they, they force us to feel. I mean, it's all connected to feeling. Mm. So, yeah, I'm just more present. Mm. I'm more present for my body, right? Because feelings usually to me, for me, evoke a, a sensation in my body. Yeah, Feelings are, are not, I mean, they, they are emotional, they are mental, but they're also very physical. Yeah. There's a sensation attached to them. Mm-hmm. I remember my therapist, you know, I would say something about being angry and she would say, where do you feel that in your body? And I, for a long time, I couldn't answer the question. Yeah. Uh, it was like also very awkward, <laughs> yeah. like a very awkward question. Almost annoying. Like Very annoying. And you're yeah. going to like sit there and look at me try to figure it out. Like I got to come up with the right answer. Uh, but now I can do it much more. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. it takes practice. And I think, you know, this may or may not feel true for you, but I believe that we actually need to be um, taught and trained by our cultures in how to feel and experience our life experience in our bodies in a good way. Um, you know, so many cultures have group dance and song and prayer and all of those things to me are embodied practices that actually tone up our capacity to, to hold feeling in our bodies. And without those kinds of shared practices, and then when you add in the phenomenon of intergenerational trauma, which I think many of us carry unconsciously, um, it's actually a really overwhelming thing to have to feel things in our bodies. And and Gabor Mate is a writer you may have encountered who talks a lot about this, you know, the relationship between addiction and not having experiences of connection and, and having the body be a kind of overwhelming place. Mm. And this is both a personal phenomenon for many people, and there's personal reasons, but it's also another thing that I think we need to look at as a cultural phenomenon. Um, if we don't have the cultural technology of song, dance, prayer, these things that tone our bodies and our minds to be able to feel, then, and, and if we don't understand how to release and heal intergenerational trauma in our bodies, then then sensation is just too too much to hold. I see this, you know, in a lot of young people as well, like, you know, their bodies are holding so much sensation because they're beautiful. You know, we're all these beautiful creatures. We're designed so perfectly to have a very nuanced and powerful physical experience of life. But because they're not being held and supported in that, and because they're carrying a burden that they shouldn't have to, they literally can't tolerate the experience of that. And that is a profound wound in our collective body in the West, I believe. Wow. Yeah, I have like seven different things to say about all this. 
Yeah, beautiful. Uh, and I just, think, and it's we can, and we can heal this. Sorry, Sean, go on. What did you want to say? I I don't know. I don't know. I have so many different like avenues. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about like uh, prayer and dance, and I'm thinking about this idea of like collective grieving that we don't have mm-hmm. that in the West, right? Like grieving is something mm-hmm. that, that is done in private. We have very short mm-hmm. uh, funerals where there's a small ceremony and ever, you know, thank you for coming, thank you for coming. It's all about like sunglasses, hide the tears, repress the feeling, the pain, small ceremony, mm-hmm. there's a reception, there's food, thank you for coming, thank you for coming, and then it's over. And yeah. I know of other cultures where like, you know, day-long ceremonies to grieve and, and it's, yeah. you're grieving collectively, you're, you're shown how to do it. You're, you know, and like to your point of, uh, we don't show people how to deal with these emotions. You know, you're talking about the young people holding a tremendous amount of sensation and feelings and emotions and, and not being able to process any of them because we don't show them how to, mm-hmm. uh, which means that they're they're sort of like shut down to mm-hmm. to the breadth of the human experience the the beautiful emotional experience that we can have as humans then i'm thinking about <laughs> how i used to use ecstasy to feel uh-huh. like i would get so many sensations from like the flood of serotonin and you know i was like desperate to feel right i was so blocked off because i couldn't process any of my emotions from not having seen it done you know, in, yeah. in life, yeah. uh, not having the tools to do it, um, being just shut down because there's so many unprocessed emotions, being desperate to want to feel. And then so taking drugs to feel mm-hmm. uh, when now, like it's been 12 years, I haven't had, you know, a drink or a drug and, and I feel all sorts of things. It's phenomenal. It's fantastic. Yeah. And it's, it's very broad. So anyways, when <laughs> I was at a loss for words, cause I didn't know where to start. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I'm just loving, you know, where you're taking this, because there's a couple things that I can say to both of those points. I mean, please, first of all, like, the irony of it being more socially acceptable for, you know, people to be high on ecstasy in order to feel than it is right. for people to actually be like, you know, moving their bodies or or using their voices in a way that actually really evokes a really integrated experience of, of ecstasy. You know, my own journey, wh- when I was a teenager, I, I went to, I started going to raves back in the 90s. <laughs> because, and, and all of my friends would be, you know, taking whatever drugs, and I would be taking ginseng pills so that mm. I could, you know, dance more and just like dancing my face off and feeling utterly ecstatic in the movement and the dance and the freak flag that I got to fly in those environments, you know, because bless, like bless rave culture. I I loved it because people could just dress and express and be whatever freaky selves they wanted to be. Um, And yeah, a lot of people brought drugs into the mix, but there was a lot of other, there were a lot of other supports for actual physical ecstasy that I think are often unrecognized in the rave culture. But anyway, then eventually I got into other ecstatic dance forms, um, and which gave me kind of a regular and socially, at least in, in those contexts, socially acceptable venue to embody intense feeling while sober. And when I was doing my master's degree in, in Boulder, Colorado, there, 
I encountered this incredible organization called Natural Highs. And it's run by a somatic psychotherapist uh, named Devani. And it's, it's become this huge movement in Boulder of young people who are, you know, demanding <laughs> cultural support for their own need to feel ecstatic, for their own need to, you know, feel all of these states that, that drugs provide a certain toxic mimic for mm. in a way that is, yeah, sober and, and integrated in, within their body and minds. So anyway, I just so feel you in that, in that, like, <laughs> <laughs> in the importance of, of having ways to connect with those beautiful states of feeling in our bodies. But about other ways that communities can actually hold painful experiences. Like I, um, one example that I, that I just find so inspiring is the civil rights movement in the United States. You know, the, the way that the communities that were building that movement were so engaged in song and movement and prayer um, as a way of really you know, and this is my interpretation of as a way of being able to feel the everything that the pain, the weight, the intensity of the oppression that they were going through, while staying in a body mind state that was actually, you know, more oriented towards uh, connection and the the nonviolence of their of their resistance. Um, and actually, ultimately, really still connected to a sense of hope and spirituality, which to to achieve that collectively in the face of the kind of oppression that they were encountering at that moment in the in American history is just this incredible feat. And I watched this phenomenal documentary called Soundtrack to a Revolution, which provides video footage of these masses of African-American people, you know, and their white comrades singing their hearts out together, moving together, feeling together, you know, in preparation for a march, in preparation for an act of resistance. And to me, that's using somatic technologies, somatic practices to transform culture from the inside out and actually sustain the kind of the level of resistance that they needed to sustain and that many of us need to sustain at this day and age to change the world. So, you know, I want to offer that as, um, as a really incredible example of people using somatic tools to, to collectively support the feel their feeling and their integration in the face of oppression. I am feeling much more hopeful now. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> after that example uh and the, the first thing that comes to mind is is that there there has to be a, a nervous system regulation in order or in order for connection to happen mm -hmm. right in order for protest to happen in order for people to come together and to sing and to dance and to move you can't do that in a dysregulated state mm -hmm. yeah. because you're either flighting you're fighting or you're fainting or you're freezing and the, the, none of those foster connection intimacy and love right precisely you got it Yay, yay, we, we did it. <laughs> we, felt, we got the formula. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I got to say, it was kind of, a, it was a tough one for me to get. Ah, well, yeah. it's, it's kind of heady. It's kind of conceptual. But I think if we feel our way through it, as we've done in this conversation, I think it gets us to where we need to go. <laughs> I think we got to where we needed to go. Uh -huh. We got there. 
Well, yeah, and 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 I would just say, you know, for anybody listening, look at your lineage, whatever your lineages are, you know, your um, family lineage, cultural lineage, uh, artistic lineage, and look for the somatic resources that you've been handed down. Because a lot of us, you know, have lost a lot of them because of colonization, intergenerational trauma, whatever. But a lot of us also still actually have have vestiges that we can draw from, or in some cases, really powerful examples. And we can share cross-culturally as long as we're respectful. You know, like the civil rights movement example I gave, those are somatic resources that have been passed down through the African-American communities, you know, somatic resources that they have sustained and that have sustained them. And, you know, Asian-American, Asian lineages, there's so many different lineages that have really, really powerful somatic tools that really provide so much restoration and healing at this moment, which are there for us to connect in with as long as we do it respectfully, uh, respecting lineage and being respectful of each other. You know, there's a lot of riches for us to draw from. I'm just thinking of, you know, living in San Francisco for a long time and walking my dog in the morning and seeing like the same group of Asian women doing Qigong in the morning at like 7.30 mm-hmm. every single day for years. Yeah. And I love that. And they looked like, inc- like had an incredible amount of vitality. Mm-hmm. And we're talking people like, they, you know, I mean, it's hard to guess, but like in their 80s or not, and like maybe even 90s. Yeah. Um, so that's just like one example of different ways of like you call somatic resources yeah. that are available as long as it's it's done with respect and mm-hmm. and care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. I, I'm kind of curious, where did you first start raving? In Toronto. Toronto rave culture. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. You guys. <laughs> Mine was in San Francisco at the age of, the tender age of 16. Uh-huh. Or maybe even, maybe even 15, my God. Yeah, I think I was 14 or 15 and yeah, in Toronto. It was a very accepting accepting community. Yeah, yeah. I I have such like fond memories of the little tribe that I was a part of back then. A lot of sweet people. Yeah, agreed. Um, So if uh, I got two or three more short questions for you, Uh, what is a message that you want to leave people with? Well, you know, I think we've just started to touch on that. You know, the... The fact that it's so important to acknowledge the trauma and the shared wounding and that I think we carry somatically, Um, but it's also so important to acknowledge the resources that we have access to. And, and, and it's, I think if there's one thing I would say, actually, it's to really keep our focus on what do we want to become? Who do we want to become? through whatever healing process we collectively go through, whatever transformational process we think we might need, who do we want to become and what somatic practices will help us to get there? Um, Because I, you know, and I've actually recently written an article about this and it's available on my website, uh, bodyintelligence.ca. I tried to paint a bit of a picture of what a healthy cultural somatic landscape might look like, what kinds of practices, what kinds of somatic tools and practices might we want to be doing if we actually want to become more capable, uh, in this case, of 
connection and um, what I call partnerships. So a way of relating to power that's based on mutual benefit rather than power over under. So, you know, I've described what I think the whole somatic landscape of that is. And so, you know, if we keep using our creativity and our thinking into the future in that way, then I'm so sure we'll find our way through because we're actually neurobiologically designed to be incredibly connective, empathetic, uh, loving, expressive beings. So we've already got a lot of support to get there. Support that comes from within. Mm -hmm. We're wired for it. We're wired for it. Uh, yeah, your resources, the articles you have on your website are incredibly detailed. I'm going to link to them, of course, in the show notes. Right. Um, so the people who, you know, want these resources know how to get them. Um, there's, you have a lot on your website. So that would be a great place for anyone who's listening to start. Yeah, thanks, Sean. So second, second of th third question, how can we find you and, and how can we work with you? Well, best place to go is my website, bodyintelligence.ca. I'm in the process of creating a, a second website for body-informed leadership specifically, but that's not launched yet. Um, I'm going to be offering three online programs starting this September. One of them is specifically for North Americans because um, I'm based in, in the UK and Europe right now. Uh, so I'm offering a introduction to body informed leadership online program and also an ongoing co-mentoring group for facilitators who are already kind of schooled up in somatic techniques and want to really focus on the dynamics of trauma intergenerational trauma uh, privilege and oppression in their group cultures so i offer online programs and i also offer individual sessions if you're listening and you just want some personal support to get in touch with your somatic landscape then um, I'm always up for that too amazing mm -hmm. yeah we will link to your courses and to your one-to-one -one and and to your uh, co-mentoring facilitator course super and the last question is what does love mean to you oh what a gorgeous question what does love mean to me I think uh, love for me is so interwoven with sensation and with expression. So I'm currently actually living at a place called the Roy Hart Theater in the south of France where people practice sound and movement work as a way of connecting to soul and psyche. So when I'm here and I'm practicing sound and I'm allowing the arising sensation in my body to just effortlessly expressed through my sounding and my moving. And when I'm doing that in relationship with another sounder mover, I feel able to be welcoming of such a range of experience within myself and within the shared interaction. And I feel such a power and a dynamism and an arising creative life force within my own body and within the interaction and to me, that feels like love. So when you asked me that question, my whole body just kind of lit up and I could feel this outpouring of energy. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. Ah, thank you so much for having me, Sean. It's been a real pleasure.
Thank you for spending this hour with Madeline and me today. I am incredibly grateful for you listening, really. And as a reminder, if you find these conversations fascinating and this podcast is making a positive impact in your life, in your relationships, in your capacity to connect to love, then please consider making a small but meaningful financial contribution to my work. It means a lot. It does. TheLoveDrive.com forward slash join and have a beautiful week.